This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, hundreds of people stood in the pouring rain in Dallas yesterday waiting for John F. Kennedy Jr. to come back from the dead and install Donald Trump as president. That's the latest QAnon theory. How do you get so far down that rabbit hole? Interesting discussion among the indigenous people in this country, whether or not they should get involved in the electoral process. And when it comes to carbon taxes, the ship has sailed. The battle has been won. They're here to stay. So how do we make them as effective as possible? Looking forward to this, going to try and get some expert opinion on how people end up so far down the rabbit hole when it comes to QAnon and other well, conspiracy theories and cult-like behavior. We have with us Dr. Brent McDonald, who is the lead psychologist with McDonald Psychology Group and an adjunct associate professor with the University of Calgary. Um, Brent, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Help me wrap my head around this because you see a number of people, seemingly normal people, engaged in behavior mm-hmm. that is completely disconnected from reality. How do we characterize that? Well, it's unfortunately something that's been really building over a long period of time. And I think the, the whole um, uh, pandemic has really accelerated things. Mm-hmm. Um, between that and, and the availability of, of information on, on, online, obviously anyone can access anything. And unfortunately, what, what's been happening is people will go online and access anything and refer to it as, quote unquote, research, right? Like right, I'm doing course, my yes. research. Yeah. Right. So they feel that this is is valid, accurate, um, scientifically worthwhile information. When in fact, more often than not, it's not. It's opinion, sort of dressed up as fact, and people start to believe it. And then what happens? And this is what's been happening um, across the world, really. But let's say within even within our province um, over the past you know two years is people will read stuff online. It'll enhance their sense of confidence in that information. That develops a sense of community because I'm yes. not the only one who thinks this. There's other people who think this. And then once you're in a community, that starts to self-reinforce, you know, because you have other people saying, yeah, you're right. That's a good feeling. We want to chase that high of, you know, other people agreeing with us. So we find more similar information. We find more people. And it just creates a really powerful um, protective feedback loop that keeps people away from um, rationality, you know, because rational is is sometimes scary. I think you're right. And, and you know, I think a lot of people just, oh boy, those people are really dumb. Not necessarily, oh, no. right? It, it can be extremely intelligent people that it's just the constant exposure has, a, has an effect. Yeah. Like we, we know from what the research has shown us on this, because they've done quite a bit of research um, from a psychological perspective on this, is that by and large, people who buy into conspiracy theories, whatever the nature of the conspiracy theory, if it's QAnon stuff or if it's, um, you know, vaccines are a means of tracking people or those sort of, like anything like that, there tends to be a lower degree of, of, of education, um, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, having said, and this is important, 
there are people who are really well-educated, really, really intelligent, and those are the ones whose opinions are the most resistant to change. So you might have someone who believes in, you know, uh, vapor trails as a means of, you know, doing whatever they sure, do yeah, or yeah. You know, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, if they're not, you know, uh, super well-educated, they don't have developed a lot of critical thinking skills, they tend to be a little bit open at some level to making to hearing other opinions. They may not agree, but they might be open to it. Someone who's highly intelligent um, and and maybe well trained and, and well versed in critical thinking will not listen, and they will. They're so reluctant to change. So there's that. There's those two extremes there um, that happen. But we do know, broadly speaking, that when it comes to uh, buying into um, conspiracy theories and that sort of thing. You know, it tends to be people who are less educated, have more employment struggles, and therefore insecurities around money and that sort of thing. Um, and that creates a lack of confidence, more anxiety, so yeah. therefore they find more powerful um, connections in those communities. But like you're saying, you can't put it all in one box. It, it, it's very, very no, diverse. No. A lot of texts from listeners saying, you know, my sister does this. I got a buddy that does this. Yeah. My dad's like this. Yeah. I can't talk. I mean, if you've got somebody in your life that you're looking at and you just, you can't comprehend it, you, is there a way to try and reestablish some sort of connection with reality there? Or what, what would you do? It's hard. It's hard. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy. And I think we all have people in our lives that, um, that, concern us um, in terms of what they're believing, what they're posting online, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so one, one of the ways is just, you know, being direct but non-emotional or at least minimally emotional. So something like, you know, I feel concerned, you know, I feel concerned that I saw a post that you put on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and it worries me because of whatever reason it is that it worries you. So at this point, you're just saying opinion and fact or fact, sorry, I'm concerned. That's a fact. It worries me because that's a fact. And um, then you can even go one step further and say, if you're, if you're interested, yeah, you know, would you be interested in hearing some research that I found? And then we can maybe talk about it. Right. It's not judgmental. It's not saying you're wrong. It's just saying I'm concerned and I'm worried. And here's why Um, I have some other, some other research that might, you know, shed some different light on this, would yeah. you be interested in seeing that, right? And most people are going to be, you know, kind of, if they say no, then it's like, okay, you obviously don't want to change yeah. Yeah. your opinion and your thinking, right? It seems some of these people, though, and not all of them, but a lot of the people who are really committed to this, they want the fight that goes along with it, and they want to prove to you oh, yeah. why you're an yeah. idiot. Um, is there? A, can you even start there? Is it better to just walk away at that point? Well, the thing about it is if this were a fight, like a physical fight, are you going to get into it or are you going to say, okay, you know what? Not worth it. Not Most worth people it. would say it's not worth <laughs> it. I'm not going to get anything out of this except maybe, uh, you know, a bloody nose. Um, and maybe I'll have some satisfaction with beating this other person up. But you're not going to feel really good about yourself one way or the other. Right. So your best bet there is is to sort of beat a, 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 a hasty but but, you know, prideful retreat and just say, I'm not getting into this. Be the bigger person. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably your best approach. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Brent. I really appreciate your time this morning. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you very much. That right. is uh, Brent McDonald, a psychologist and a prof at UFC. And um, 
you know, I think it's that's the important point. It's really easy to say, boy, those people are dumb. Look at them standing in the rain waiting for JFK to come back from the dead. They're not all dumb. They're not. Um, and it, 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 there, there's more to it. It's something we really need to pay attention to because there's a lot of it going on in our society, as the doc said, right? It's not that simple to just say, oh, those people are crazy or those people are dumb. No, 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 no. More to it than that. So Albertans have just gone through two rounds of elections. Of course, we had the federal election, and then very shortly after that, we all went to the polls and the municipal elections. And what happens every time we have an election? We're bombarded with messaging, right? You must go vote. You must exercise your right to vote. People died for your right to go out and vote. You must get involved in the process. Um, well, like all Canadians, Canada's Indigenous population hears the same messages, but they also hear another message. This is really, really interesting. They're told, please go vote. They get the same messages we all get. Told it's important that their voices are heard on Election Day. But there's also a group, a sizable group, um, that says, no, don't go vote. In fact, you shouldn't vote. It's a really complex situation, very interesting, and it's about a lot more than just going to the polls and casting your ballot. So to find out more about this, we're going to chat with Chadwick Cowie, a faculty lecturer in the Department of Political Science at McGill University. Chadwick, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. This really is a very interesting discussion. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. And the whole issue, right, when we talk about First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Canadians voting in any election, really it comes down to an issue about citizenship and sovereignty, right? Um, yes, and, and terminology and, and how it's discussed um, from the Canadian context towards uh, First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Um, and just explain that a bit to us and why there's, there is a group out there in a community that believes, you know what, getting involved in the Canadian electoral process is actually the wrong thing to do. So it's, it's, it's more than one community. There's, we need to remember First Nations comprises 50 different nations, then there's Métis, and then there's four different regions of Inuit. So when, we, when we're talking about them, we need to remember to pluralize that, because that's sometimes the, 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 the concern that we have is that we lump them all together without understanding the unique history that all three subgroups have, but then also the unique uh, history and relationship to, to the Canadian state and the Crown that First Nations specifically would have, depending on the nation that they're from and where they're from. And so sometimes when we're talking about that and, you know, we, we assume certain things in regards to them, in regards to being one. We forget those histories and the complexities that exist, because obviously we're, we're, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Mohawk territory here in um, Montreal. That relationship and the relationship with the Haudenosaunee towards the Canadian state, uh, towards this idea of Canadian citizenship, is going to be quite different from some of the other regions, such as where I'm from, which is near Peterborough, Ontario, my communities there, as well as Treaty 7 and Treaty 6. And that complicated history, I mean, even when you're talking about the uh, granting the right of citizenship and the right to vote, that it's a very recent development for Canada's Indigenous peoples. So, uh, yes, it is. And let's, uh, sorry to, to, to be careful with that. And let's be careful of saying Canada's Indigenous peoples as well, because that denotes ownership. And it's something okay, that we have to take into consideration. And it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that um, sometimes gets forgotten because cause the way it's approached, and this is the... The thing that we sometimes forget when we're talking about um, this concept of citizenship and the granting of the rights to vote, um, we need to remember that for, for some people, citizenship is looked at as a gateway forward, as a way of being able to move forward, becoming part of the democratic process, becoming part of a new, a new country that they've immigrated to or that they've had to, to, to flee to because of what's going on in their home territories or their home country. Uh, for First Nations and Inuit and, and, and to an extent Métis, citizenship was used as a way to 
deconstruct their own identities and their own nationhoods, their 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 citizenship, their their citizenship structures, their 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 legal structures, their cultural and political structures, their governance structures. So there's some concerns that come with that when we're looking at that, and especially for for Inuit when we're talking about Inuit peoples, we need to remember that they were granted citizenship and the rights to vote in 1951, um, but most of them didn't get a chance to start voting until the late 70s because ballot boxes and ballots were not actually right. given to these communities. And on top of that, there is a strong argument that the whole idea of granting citizenship to Inuit people wasn't because of wanting to give them equal access to being equal Canadians. It was because they needed them for sovereignty issues, uh, especially during the Cold War in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And and as the height of the Cold, Cold War continued on in the 80s, um, they were used as what we would call human flagpoles rather than as equal citizens. For Métis, Granting citizenship into Canada comes with the Manitoba Act in 1870. Um, but for a lot of Métis people, they had to hide their identity after yeah. that because of the movement of Anglophones from, 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 from what we call Ontario now out there and becoming the majority and then chipping away and attacking them. A lot of them had to claim being French-Canadian or, or being Francophone in order to avoid persecution. And then for First Nations, we need to remember that although the granting of citizenship in 1960 comes about, it's done through a lens of just focusing on socioeconomic issues, not that treaty or nation-to-nation relationship. And at the same time, that whole enfranchisement before 1960, it was enfranchisement was used to destroy and get rid of First Nations identities uh, and and that claim to their their home communities and their home nations. And that that's the key point here, right? I mean, basically, as you mentioned, these are sovereign nations that we're talking about here. So when you get involved in the Canadian electoral process, there's that whole discussion of you're participating in a system that you didn't even agree to. This is not what you agreed to. What the treaties are based on. It, it, you're supposed to have your own sovereign, independent nation, right? Yes, and so so this is sometimes the part that comes, and you see this a lot with the the Haudenosaunee communities or the the Iroquois communities, where they were they will remind you that they don't participate, and they're they're strongly opposed to it. Not all, but but a good chunk of them are very opposed to it because it goes against their treaty relationship with the crown. It goes right. against that agreement to stay uh, to, to to keep themselves within their own canoe and go peacefully alongside um, the, the, the the canoe for for the English or the or, or for Canada as it came to be known. Um, others. Um, look at it as a way of moving forward. So, for instance, there's people like John Burroughs who talk about a way to utilize the system to bring back that memory because that understanding of that nation-to-nation relationship, that separateness that exists, that's supposed to, to exist alongside coexistence, um, has been forgotten, and that was done on purpose through a lot of the earlier parts of uh, Canada's formation, um, who, who argue that it could be used in a way to be able to change that view and bring forth more of a, re- a reminder and an, a re-understanding of that relationship to Canadians and to politicians. That's the part I'm curious about, Chadwick, is because, you know, the the message that we often hear is your voice needs to be heard, right? You need to be involved um, and, and, and be part of the process so that you can actually be recognized and be, you know, have your your issues brought forward. But at the same time, that sort of goes count. I mean, how do you how do you balance those two? Which way is the is the correct way here? Well, that's 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 a good question. It's a it's an ongoing discussion amongst a lot of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and within their communities and and, and nations. Because, like like non-Indigenous people, we're not we're not a, a whole one. Like like um, non-Indigenous people, First Nations are not all one. And within each nation, they're not all going to be the same. There's going to be di- diverse opinions on how to move forward and and then what that can entail. So that's an ongoing debate and discussion that goes on within yeah. First Nations communities. But it, it's one that is obviously, you know, we're talking today about that. It's something that's sometimes forgotten by the general Canadian society of that part, that it's more than just citizenship or that Indigenous people don't go vote. It's that history that has to be considered. And the reminder that for, for First Nations people, uh, especially, um, 
Canada dictates to us who is one of us and who's not. We are legally, unilaterally, legally told who is one of us and who is not. We are one group out of two. So Native Americans in the United States also go through this. But these, these two countries are the only two areas where there's a group of people who are told who's allowed to be one of them and not, and we're given a number for it, rather than following that agreement. So this is complexity that comes into, and when we're talking about voting and, and, and participating in Canada, there's also that need to have a conversation about what our own citizenship structures are, how we move forward, and what's a middle ground going forward. Because like every other society, First Nations people are not frozen in time. We're not just stuck in a pre-1492 context. We we change. We, we, we borrow from each other. We have good ideas on certain things, and there's certain things like certain other... Um, uh, ideas and philosophies that may have been adopted from from other nations when we, when we had contact with them, just as it was done in many parts of the world. Um, but it's a conversation that needs to be ha- that that, yeah. that needs to be had without the idea that we have to be stuck in this pre fourteen ninety two or pre seventeen sixty three context. And I'm talking about seventeen sixty three because of the Royal Proclamation. It, it really is fascinating, Chadwick. Are those conversations happening? Are these discussions taking place to sort of take a, take a, a different perspective on all of this? It, it really is fascinating. Um, it's starting to trickle out. Like there, there's been some key people who start to do this. You can, uh, as someone who's in political science, um, it, it's key to remember that, like, for instance, the first Indigenous person to really be considered and, and published in the Canadian Journal of Political Science was Joyce Green in 2000. So this has become a thing following the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. But it's more you're starting to see more of this discussion going on and starting to see it because there's more Indigenous uh, scholars who are now in academia and who are pushing this yeah. and blending the the Western academic setting with their own Indigenous um, academic settings or their own nation's way of doing um, education. Fascinating stuff. Chadwick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. You bet. That's Chadwick Cowie, who is a faculty lecturer at the Department of Political Science at McGill University. And it, it really is an interesting discussion, you know, and uh, I'll be following it closely to see how this how this goes moving forward. Because, it, you know, when you, you, you take a closer look at the examination of the issue, there's there's the competing narratives there is you need to be involved in this process to make sure that your voice is heard. And then there's the other side saying, yeah, but that's not the process we agreed to. That's not what the deals were made on. That's not how things were supposed to work for us. Let's talk carbon tax here. Um, I think the ship has sailed on whether or not we're going to have carbon taxes, right? I mean, that was the battle not all that long ago. Carbon taxes won't work. We don't need a... They're here. They're here. Uh, so the question is now, what do we do with them? Uh, let's chat with Ken Boss and Cool, who's worked on past provincial and federal conservative platforms. He's a prof at Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill and a research fellow at the Smart Prosperity Institute. Ken, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Good to be here. So we agree, right? The carbon taxes, it's, it's a done deal. They're here to stay, especially after what we saw this week. Yeah, there's no political constituency left for fighting carbon taxes. Uh, even, even if you look at the people that voted for the PPC, if you construct a carbon tax with a nice tax refund, you can get about 30 to 40 percent of them on side. And so if you haven't, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't even got the, the PPC voters opposed to it, I don't think you're going to be building a too big a coalition when they only got five, seven percent of the vote in Alberta and five percent nationally. Uh, you're not going to be doing very well. And that is the thing. I mean, all political parties, I mean, when we're talking about the major parties, they all have some sort of carbon tax in their platform. It's basically accepted right across the spectrum now. 
Yeah, I mean, the public expects our political parties to do something about climate change, and the public has largely equated carbon taxes as the most effective and efficient way to address climate change. And I think in so doing, they are correct. It's a market-based mechanism. It's a way to change incentives. It's a way to get uh, emissions down without having the government stick its fingers and its toes and its ears and its elbows into our economy and muck it all up. Um, how was it won? How did it change? Because, I mean, as we know, the province of Alberta was in uh, in court challenging the carbon tax not all that long ago. So um, when did it change where most Canadians became accepting of it? I got into politics, and it's going to age me a bit. My first campaign was knocking in lawn signs for the Reform Party in 1988 and then went to Ottawa with Preston Manning in 1994. And in those days... You know, getting the deficit under control, the zero and three, we were, we were, we were thought to be radicals. We were crazy. We could never balance the budget in three years. And then we got to Ottawa and we continued to push hard. And from the 1995 federal budget by Paul Martin with lots of pressure from Preston Manning, guess what it did? It got rid of the deficit in three years. And for many, many years, running deficits was something we didn't really want to do. Now, we could argue that we've lost a bit of that in the last few years, and that's fair. But same thing you can say about free trade. I think on these sort of big national issues, we have debates between political parties, within political parties. And I think those debates are good and healthy. And if we would have just said carbon taxes are yeah. good and they're here to stay and everyone agrees without having that debate, that would have been a bad thing. But we've had the debate. You know, conservatives win a lot of arguments. Uh, I think conservatives are on the wrong side of this one, but they, you know, politically, I would say they lost the argument, and that's fine. Let's move on. Um, but you made a good point. Not all carbon taxes are created equal, and how the government no. goes about crafting it can really make a difference, right? Well, this is this is what I'm excited about, is now that we've agreed that carbon taxes are here to say, let's, let's design a good one. Yeah. The federal government, for example has, on top of its carbon tax, about $40 billion in expenditures over the next 10 years. Plus, it's got all of these regulations to fiddle with this and fiddle with that and tweak this and tweak that. And it's like, either have faith in the carbon tax that it's going to change incentives and get get emissions down and get rid of all this other stuff. So I think, as a conservative, I'm very excited about the opportunity to uh, not only you know use carbon tax revenues to cut taxes, but take this other $40 billion and use that to cut taxes too. And I think we, we could have a stronger economy and do something for the environment. And I think that's a pretty exciting place to be. So how do we do that? Like you said, I mean, you can really make it uh, much less contentious if you, if you rebate a lot of it, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the starting point. And there is some of that in the Canadian carbon tax. Yeah, they're they're rebating a lot of it. But I guess what I would say is not only are they not rebating all of it, which we should do, but we should also not spend all this other money on incentives for electric cars and stuff. And we can use that to cut taxes. The other interesting thing, and I'm going to get a little bit into the weeds here. I took a look at which kind of voters get the best rebates from the federal carbon tax and it turns out it turns out that the people that are get get the worst deal under the federal rebates are people who live in suburbs and people who live in rural areas now gee i wonder what kind of voters those are yeah, yeah. and so even the liberals have tweaked a little bit on the edges tweaked their rebates to uh benefit the people that either vote for them or they want to vote for them and have tweaked it again so i think conservatives could also say we're going to have better design rebates for rural Alberta. We're going to have, for rural Canada, we're going to have better design rebates for uh, for people who live in suburbs and have to drive uh, their kids around and big families and the kind of people who vote for Conservatives. And this is the key issue because Alberta, in fighting the federal 
carbon tax and not coming up with a plan of their own, you're automatically defaulting to the federal one. So it's an opportunity, really, for the UCP to to bring in a tax that works for Albertans. You know, I, I kind of chuckle about this because Jason Kenney's constantly talking about not letting Justin Trudeau make decisions for Albertans. But he actually, now in fairness, the industrial carbon tax, so the carbon tax on our industrial emissions, on our oil sands and all that, that's collected and administered by the provincial government. But the carbon tax on retail, on gasoline that we put in our car, on, on the home heating fuel, all of that money is collected by Justin Trudeau. And yeah. guess who gets to decide how to spend that money? Justin Trudeau. So it kind of baffles me that Jason Kenney is letting Justin Trudeau decide how to spend this big chunk of money. Let's repatriate that money and bring it back to Alberta. Um, now, so much talk this week about carbon tax. Of course, that was the central theme that we heard out of Glasgow. Does it change the discussion at all? I mean, uh, in Canada, we've already got a carbon, a very aggressive one, really. Um, Alberta, we don't. Where do you think we go from here in terms of carbon taxes in Alberta and Canada? Is it I think Canada was well. Canada was well ahead of the globe on this stuff. Uh, I think our discussions are ahead. I think some of the a couple of things. One, I think we should bring the federal carbon tax back to Alberta and decide how to spend it ourselves. Yeah. Two, I think we do need to have a debate about how fast we go to 170 if other countries around the globe are reluctant to move. We really have to figure out and make sure that we don't cripple our domestic industries, our oil sands industries, our natural gas industries, and so on. That we don't that we're not Boy Scouts. So we don't go to 100 170 uh, quickly in the rest of the world. Or, out of nature the world. So those those are sort of more in the weeds type of discussions that I think we need to start uh, having more of in the in the coming weeks, months, and years. Yeah, the details. Ken, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Talk you to you soon. Ken Bossenkul, who we've had on the show before. He's worked on past provincial and federal conservative platforms and is a prophet. Maxwell School of Public Policy at McGill. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.